we do live in a cause and effect world. I think it's very easy then to transfer that into our relationship with the Lord to say, you know, if I behave a certain way, Lord, then there should be a kind of payoff for me. And so I think we do this in just a hundred different ways all the time. Like if I get up and I have my quiet time and, you know, I dedicate my day to the Lord um, and I love my neighbor and I, you know, read my Bible and I pray and all that, then it should go well for me. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. How do you view your relationship with God? As Christians, we have three enemies. The world, which is the fallen philosophical and value system. The flesh, the unredeemed part of who we are, our humanity. And the devil, with his fallen angels. That's three. When I was young, I remember hearing about each one. I remember hearing about worldly thinking. But somewhere along the line, over the past few decades, that idea in many circles has become passe. We don't talk about worldliness very much anymore. We don't want to be seen as irrelevant or uncool or not with it. And so we've abandoned the term. And unfortunately, in trying to be a corrective and trying to remove ourselves from the legalism of past generations, we have once again gone too far. And we have to bring the pendulum back to its right place. Because I think many of us have subtly bought into the counterfeit promises that our culture offers. And in doing so, have become worldly. I mean, how much do we as Christians buy into the same counterfeit promises that the world offers? We have to ask ourselves that question. In our last episode, I began a conversation with author and speaker Jen Oshman. If you haven't heard it, Go back and start there because we're jumping right in. How does the way we think about sex buy into the same ways of thinking that the world does? And of course, there is the opposite side of that coin. That we can talk about purity and we can honor purity, but in doing so, we can make an idol out of purity. We're seeing this anti-purity movement. Not that they're saying that purity is wrong. But it went too far, and it became an idol. It seems that we have come to the point where in our proclamation of the gospel and trying to present countercultural claims of Christ to it, that those same countercultural claims need not just be made to the world, but be made to those in the church as well. That is how much this worldly thinking has permeated the church. Just for an example. Let's talk about sex and marriage. I mean, we want to be pure. We want to be honorable in the sight of God. We want to exalt marriage in a culture that has largely pushed back and totally denigrated it. But in doing so, have we gone too far and made an idol of it? Or maybe that might be just too much. How about we think about singleness for a moment? 
there are a lot more singles that are out there. And yet, we know that we want to get them to be, oftentimes, in our good intention, we can't comprehend someone enjoying singleness, so we want to get that person to get out of singleness. We have someone for them. We want them to meet somebody. And maybe they do want to be out of singleness. or But maybe they just, that's their gift. And rather than helping them embrace it, we've actually really put it down. I think for many of us, we do. We view singleness not as a blessing to be embraced, but a burden to be escaped. That's why we're talking with Jen on today's episode of Apollos Watered. We're going to talk about this and so much more. But before we get to today's episode, we're looking for some good men and women to lock arms with us to water the world. Too many thirsty souls are dying on the vine right now. And we're looking for those brave enough to partner with us so that we together might bring the water of life to the dry and arid places of our world. To do that, go to apolloswatered.org and click the support us button and simply select the amount that works for you. And together, we can water faith so that others can water their world. Now, Let's get to the second part of my conversation with Jen Oshman. Happy listening. One of the things that you wrote that was, we do not need to think more about sex. We need to think more of sex. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So this is in the culture on cheap sex. Um, and this is just the idea that, you know, the sexual revolution amongst other things convinced us that our highest good is to have the most sexual encounters that we can, um, that our best self-expression, the best freedom, um, the best, you know, joy and happiness that we're going to experience is if we can have as many sexual encounters as possible. So it's not that we need to think more about sex. Sex is everywhere. You can hardly hear or watch a commercial or a song or a movie or drive down the highway with a, without a billboard that is proclaiming um, the goodness of sex. So um, it's not that we need to think more about it because we think about it all the time, mm -hmm. but we do need to think more of it. We need to value it more. We need to prize it more. We need to um, understand what sex was created for and in what context it is best enjoyed and in what context it serves us as humans the most, you know, the, um, the best. So a holistic approach really to sex. Think, think more of it, not necessarily more about it. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. Another thing you wrote, and again, I don't think I've ever quoted someone so much just going through one of these conversations before, but there were just so many tidbits that I wanted to draw out where you said, how might history be different if instead in that moment we stood before our maker and proclaimed the female body to be very good? What if instead of preventing pregnancy, we protected it? What if we swapped our inconvenience for awe? How do we do that? Mm. I love to talk about this. And whenever I talk about it with women, it usually blows their minds. Not because it's necessarily an original thought with me. It's not. I've obviously learned from so many women before me. Mm -hmm. But this is something that I don't think my generation and even a generation or two ahead of me and behind me has given any thought to. You know, we think birth control, abortion, preventing pregnancy is so normal. Um, we even mm -hmm. think some of these things are human rights or there should be the rights of all people, not necessarily abortion, but um, we just have so 
normalized preventing pregnancy. Now, I am not necessarily communicating a perspective that says women should have as many children as possible. You know, that's not necessarily my point of view. But what I am saying is, what if we were to rewind a few decades or, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years? And instead of looking for ways to ensure that women don't get pregnant, or if they got pregnant, they could do away with the baby. What if instead, as a society, we had said, babies are going to happen? How can we create workspaces and jobs and rhythms in our community? where those babies are embraced and cherished? Mm -hmm. What if we made room for all the babies instead of pressuring women to do away with them? How Mm -hmm. different would it be? In other words, like what if we really looked at, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for these things, but things like universal healthcare or things like, you know, several years off when you're having babies. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to get creative, bring in some political scientists, you know, but what if we thought outside the box and said, yeah, let's be a people who makes room for life rather than a people driven with the obsession of preventing and doing away with life. Mm. I just, I, I get uh, excited and also sad when I think about what could have been. Mm. And, um, and maybe the tide is turning, you know, with the overturn of Roe yeah. and the pro-life community wanting to get more creative and, you know, those across even religious lines and political lines coming together to think about these things. Maybe we will become a people who does a better job of making space for babies rather than the pursuit of ending pregnancies. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You know, one of the things that I, that I wanted to know as I was reading this book is really this idea of personhood. You bring this out, the dignity of the, of the person and the holistic understanding of it, how it's connected, how we're connected to one another. But how do we help people recover a, a proper philosophy of personhood? How do we help people recover a proper philosophy of personhood? I don't know. I think, I think as believers in the church, it has to start with us. And we, I think in the church, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. I think we have a very um, weak understanding of being embodied souls. We don't have a great theology of the body. Yeah. And we don't have a great theology of how our mind and hearts and bodies are all linked together. Um, and I think that in the church, we, because we don't, 
value the body as much as we could or value that connection between heart, mind, and soul. Mm-hmm. We have been far too easily pleased. We've sort of gone along with the cultural current and maybe not dug in. It's been uncomfortable and awkward, right? Like writing this book for me was pretty scary because I say some stuff in there that is so not PC. Oh, um, yeah. And I don't, oh, yeah. you know, I don't come from a Christian background and I say stuff in there that makes the church mad, to be honest. So there is risk, you know, putting yourself on the line, putting your reputation on the line. And I would love to see more Christians and just the church embrace that and say things that are countercultural and maybe counter church culture as well and really just press into these bodies are good. Like this mm-hmm. physical body that I have is good. I think the church slides into Gnosticism sometimes where we go, oh, oh, it's, yeah. just my, it's just my spirit that matters, not my body that matters. You know, I think we need to be re-catechizing our people, retraining our people to understand the value and goodness of the body and how it is directly connected to the heart and mind and soul. Booyah. I want to stand on the soapbox right now because... <laughs> Embodiment is a huge thing for us. And uh, we've actually interviewed several people like Sam Alberry, you would know, Timothy Tennant, who's actually the president of Asbury. He wrote a book called For the Body. And he, he uh, I'm, I'm finding more Christians are picking up on this. I mean, there's a reason why the gospels even mention it. You mentioned the modern day Gnosticism. I can't help but think of John's gospel after Jesus's resurrection and it has Jesus eating bread. This idea of even the body, the taking care of the body. And you're right. I think for so long, You've had people say, you know, I'm not, I'm a soul, I'm not a body. And then mm-hmm. that though gets into the engendered idea. Like, well, then my gender doesn't matter. Are you saying that it's just my, uh, my genitals that define who I am? Well, in some ways, yes, it helps. It's, it's connected to the part of who you are as a, as an engendered being, but you're right. I just think that we have not done a very good job and it's been brought out in the culture of, and in the church we've not been very good at understanding the body and a theology of the body. And we've focused so much on the spiritual. This is where we've not been holistic. And, but I think there's a response like yourself, you're writing about this. You've got other figures that are writing about it. I know Kelly Capic has written about it. I know Sam Albury and Timothy Tennant and Nancy Piercy, even for the body, understanding that personhood. These are men and women that I am supremely grateful for that God is using the kingdom because we desperately need to recover this. If we're understanding our humanity, part of it understands our body. And I think our younger generation needs that more than ever. But like, I think everyone knows orthodoxy is defined when it encounters heterodoxy. Hmm. Sometimes we don't realize, I mean, no one ever would think to identify marriage as a husband and wife when it has always been that way. It's, it's never had to be defined. And it's until we encounter the wrong that we have to define the right. And the church has had to do this over time. But this is where I think your work does well is that you provide a backdrop of where people are living. You're describing their water, as you Mm -hmm. you mentioned before. And that's what I've enjoyed about the book as I was reading through it. And you hit one box after another, after another. And you brought in so many different illustrations and pictures. Like you mentioned the parable of the prodigal son. I know You've, I think you were influenced a little bit by Keller there. I could, <laughs> yeah, you think <laughs> um, a little bit. And uh, well, you also talk about him in in the, his book, like the um, his book on idols, and mm-hmm. you, you mentioned a bit of that. But I love the fact that you did contrast the parable of the prodigal son, and you contrasted with the the self. You identified in that the self righteous brother. I think though it's important, and I want to hear why you felt so. You, you felt it was important to address both brothers mm. in the middle of that story. Mm. So go ahead and explain yes. that if you were. 
Yeah, definitely. So obviously the parable of the prodigal son is a favorite of, of all of ours. I mean, it's one that is retold in culture. Um, and it's one that we all know, even if you're not probably a Bible reader, if you're in Western culture, you have an idea of what a prodigal is. But I do think so much pen, you know, so much ink has been um, spilled on the prodigal himself, the younger brother himself. And that is good and helpful. I see myself in him as well. Um, but sometimes we forget that he did have an older brother who stayed behind. And um, we see, so we see this, I, the idolatry in the younger brother is that pursuit of the good life in the far country, you know, leaves father, leaves home, takes the money and goes and, and pursues debauchery, reckless living, foolish living. Mm -hmm. And then that comes up short and he returns home. But the older brother has stayed home the whole time, as you know, and he has worked hard for the father. But what we find at the end of the parable is the son speaking to the father, this older son who always obeyed and always did the right thing, speaking to the father in a very transactional way. I've always obeyed you. I've always done what you wanted. And, and what, how do you treat me? You know, what are you, what's my payment in return? And so our eyes are open then to this older brother who didn't view his relationship with the father as one of mutual caring for and building up of one another and working side by side and laboring together. But he saw him himself as a servant who deserved to be paid by the master. And so the point of me lacing both brothers throughout the entire book is it's easy for us to identify the prodigal. It's easy for us to say, yeah, there's the guy who goes out and spends all his money on prostitutes, or there's the woman who is inside the church and maybe leaves to have a lot of sex or have an abortion or whatever. It's easy to point at that sibling in Christ because they're very identifiable. But I wanted us who are in the church to think, okay, what are my idols? What are, where am I placing my identity? What are my pursuits? If I'm not tempted by things like abortion or multiple sexual encounters, where have I then put my hope and trust? And, and are we a bit like the older brother? Do we see ourselves in him saying to our father in heaven, I have obeyed you. I have done all the right things. I've done just what you asked right here at home. And yet this is how you pay me. This is how you treat me. You know, do we perform or behave in such a way that we expect our father in heaven um, to sort of pay us back for that? And so I wanted to speak to my sisters who have gone to a far country and my sisters who have stayed home, but maintained a transactional relationship with their God in heaven. And I think if we're honest, we can all see ourselves in both brothers. Um, but I wanted to point my siblings to just the goodness of the father in both stories. The mm. father who goes out to both sons, who entreats both sons to come in, to come home, to come to the feast. He's tender towards both sons. And I'm so grateful for that. And I, I hope as much you know, cultural exegesis as happens in the book. I hope that the reader's hearts are drawn home to the heart of the father more than I hope they close the book and go, yeah, home is where I want to be at the feast that my father has made. Are we only half alive? Embers drifted in the night Looking, wandering all the time Earlier on, you said that you 
you knew that secular people would see it and you're saying things that are not PC, but you also knew that some of the things that you would write would anger the church. One of those things that, <laughs> that I, I went, Oh, <laughs> yeah. it was uh, on page 156. You mentioned the, but you said you weren't Christians about the empty promise of purity. And due to the purity pushback we're seeing right now, why did you feel the necessity to write about this, again, quote unquote, empty promise of purity? And you have to put it in context for people or they're going to be like, wait, what? Yeah. Hit that. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, when I wrote the book back in 2020 and 2021, the pushback against purity culture wasn't quite as strong as it is in this moment. So it's gaining steam. So, you know, maybe a few more like caveats would have been helpful. <laughs> I didn't necessarily see this momentum building up as it has, mm -hmm. and it's probably just going to get worse, to be honest, but that's okay. I, I stand by what I wrote and what oh, I, and I still feel what I said. I think, I think you're right, by the way, I, sure. I still think yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it was a wrong thing. It's just one of those things that I think without context, people are going to be like, yes. what? But totally. when you when you explain it, you bring it right back to where it needs to be. And I just wanted our audience to be able to hear that from you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because honestly, that chapter has been taken out of context online multiple times. And I've been, mm. um, it's been unfortunate the way that, you know, people haven't actually engaged with what it says. They've just engaged with a one-liner or two-liner, which, right. you know, is what happens. But the point is this, I think for a couple generations, at least, if not more, um, well, let me start with this it was good and right and necessary for the church to push back against the cultural momentum of the sexual revolution right. as the family and sex and purity came under attack and were dismissed as old fashioned and unuseful to us and passe as families and marriage and children were devalued and even done away with it was necessary, good and right for the church to push back on that. And so I applaud my ancestors in the faith, um, grandparents, great grandparents in the faith for doing that. that. That's what they had to do. But as we are so prone to do, I think in many contexts, that pushback then turned into just a different idol inside the church. And that was, and it was, a, it was another way of, you know, sort of transactional living. And we put purity on a pedestal where only Jesus himself should be. We said, pursue purity pursue abstinence. The good life is found when you stay pure. Now it's absolutely true that there is blessing and goodness mm -hmm. um, that flows out of being remaining pure. Obviously purity is holy and it's good. And our God calls us to those things. Absolutely. But if I look at purity and abstinence and expect that to deliver me soul deep peace and satisfaction and contentment, then I have made it an idol just the way we might make finances or security or safety an idol. If I expect purity to pay me a good marriage, healthy kids, a happy life, which I think is what the purity movement accidentally taught yeah. many yeah. people. I'm not saying it was intentional, but we're so prone as a people to go, you know, if I have that, then it will give me this, whether it's a terrible thing or a good thing. If I have that, then I'll have this value, this identity. I'll finally have arrived. And so I think that did happen with purity. I know it happened with purity. I mean, there's all kinds of people and books and friends that I have personally that are talking about this right now. So 
I, what I see now, the shrapnel that I see now from that, and I'm engaged in churches all over the globe through missions and through my own ministry is women in multiple countries saying they feel less than if they are not married or if they don't have multiple children, mm-hmm. that they feel disregarded, unneeded, less mature, seen as less sanctified, whether people want to admit it or not. And, and I, it might be harder for men in the church to see than women because they're not in our spaces all the time. Whether people see it, observe it or not, the truth is we have made somewhat of a hierarchy mm-hmm. in the church. And women who are married and have the most kids are at the top. And women who are unmarried and have no children are at the bottom. And that's a tragedy. I mean, I know that you quote Sam Albury in there and Sam talks about redeeming this idea of understanding of singleness. That's a a gift where even Paul says, I wish you were unmarried as I am. There's the opportunity to do more ministry, to connect with more people. And it can become an idol in and of itself. And I like the fact that you address that. And when you even mentioned it, I wanted to explore this understanding where you mentioned the transactional leader, like this transactional faith. I don't know, what was the proper term? You said transactional, but what was the the thing that you were modifying this? Because you said- Oh, I don't know. It becomes this transactional relationship. I think that was Mm -hmm. it. Transactional Mm -hmm, relationship. Describe that for a bit, because I don't think- I, I'm not sure if if we've elaborated on that or not yet, mm-hmm, because this mm-hmm. this idea of this transactional leader relationship is actually quite profound when you explore it a little bit further. What do you mean by that? Well, I think you know, obviously, we live in a context where there's cause and effect, right? So in my normal life, if I work hard and produce a good article, it is likely to get published. You know, if mm-hmm. I um, work hard and get the promotion, then I have money to pay my bills. Like we we do live in a cause and effect world. So I think it's very easy then to transfer that into our relationship with the Lord and to say, you know, if I behave a certain way, Lord, then there should be a kind of payoff for me. And so I think we do this and just a hundred different ways all the time. Like if I get up and I have my quiet time and, you know, I dedicate my day to the Lord um, and I love my neighbor and I, you know, read my Bible and I pray and all that, then it should go well for me. And so this is where the question of why me, you know, why me? And who hasn't asked why me today? We, we all ask it all the time because I think it's in our flesh to think that if we behave a certain way, then we should receive a certain payoff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Lord often works in so many ways that we do not understand. And what's true, and this is hard, I just spoke on this at a global missions conference this past weekend. What is true is that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. He actually calls us to suffering. And it's through suffering that we are sanctified and formed more and more into his image. And so I think in the West where we are pretty wealthy and secure and safe, we think, well, I'm with the King. Like I'm with the Messiah. Things should go well for me. I'm on his team. So I should have healthy kids. I should have a you know pretty wealthy lifestyle. I'm with him. And, and that's just not the way our Lord works. He, he pursues the deeper things and, and draws us, you know, takes us through valleys that we might be formed more into his image. Absolutely in agreement with you because there are so many people that dismiss suffering. They think suffering is it, it means something is wrong or I've done something wrong. And there is sometimes that's the case. Yep. I mean, there are consequences to our disobedience, but sometimes your obedience 
actually leads to suffering because you're doing what God wants you to do. And again, that's where I think the church has failed is that we haven't, we haven't really grasped this idea of suffering, but going back for a moment, you mentioned the hierarchy with those who are married with more children. And I know when I was in Uganda, I had a woman that was on our team and she goes, my name is, she stood up and she said her name and she goes, I have 11 children and they're all biological hers. And even the African women were like, they lifted their head up and they're like, you know, there was this almost like congratulations because the more children you have, I mean, that's very old Testament too. Yeah. We, we see yeah. that, we see that idea and we really push down singleness, just like within the ancient world, singleness was almost a, a curse, like something was wrong with you, but how, you write something that I thought that's going to get some attention where you said singleness is central to the gospel message. And again, I know I want you to put it back in context so that people can see, I didn't mean to pull it out and use that in a negative way. I, I want that to be, because it, it's a positive. It's actually very positive in how you draw it out, but elaborate on what you meant by that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's jarring because we just don't consider or view singleness as a gift. I mean, we might say it in sort of a passing condescending kind of way, but I think in general, in church culture, we just don't value it. We don't see it as a good option, you know, and you see this whenever somebody who um, is, you know, you have a conversation with a single friend and you're like, I've got someone for, are you dating anybody? I think I've got an idea for who I want to hook you up with, you know, and we look the other way when people cohabitate. I mean, I think this is even where we say homosexual unions can be holy. It's because we just can't imagine a celibate lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We just can't imagine somebody maintaining singleness and that being good for them and for the whole church. You know, we yeah. don't have an imagination for the single life. Um, and so, yeah, singleness central to the gospel message that is said in the context of looking at the life of Christ, Christ himself being single. And so we see that we, the sons and daughters of God are adopted, you know, adopted in Christ, right. To the father and made co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus himself was not married. Jesus himself did not have biological children. Our grafting into the family of God is by grace through faith. It's not through the formation of a biological family. It's through the replication and the multiplication of this spiritual family where we each come to our father in heaven by grace through faith. And so I think, and Sam Alberry speaks to this so well, I think we have elevated the biological family at the expense of the spiritual family. And we have prioritized the family of four inside the walls with the white picket fence and one cat and one dog at the expense of acknowledging and seeing our siblings in Christ who are unmarried or who have families that look different from our own. And rather than pursuing unity with them, we have so elevated um, the nuclear family and said, no, I've got to protect this. I have to cherish this and isolate this. We miss out on the full expression of God's family through Christ. How do we help recover that idea? The, I mean, because at one level, we're trying to do both at the same time. Like yeah. our, our mm -hmm. culture, our culture is denigrated family mm -hmm. and we're trying to exalt it. But at the same time, not at the exclusion of the singles that are all around us, everywhere that we yeah. go. I mean, singles are increasing more and more and more and more. And even then we have the people that we're encountering. I know that it got to a point when my last pastor, I was more surprised if someone was married and having a child than I was if they were unmarried 
and yeah. having a child. I was expecting yeah. people to be just pregnant that weren't married. And mm-hmm. so how do we help recover this and keep these two in tension while promoting family and also promoting this idea of sufficiency or embracing singleness as a mm-hmm. gift? Yeah. I love that you asked this question because when I run into, you know, conflict over this particular chapter, mm-hmm. I think it's because there's a premise that we can't do both at the same time. There's this idea that we can't hold these two things in tension. And of course, I mean, that really just speaks to our broader culture right now, right? It's like black yeah. or white, left or right, one or the other. And so often it's really both. How do we do both? So I do yep. appreciate this question so much because that woman in Uganda with 11 kids is a blessing, like praise the Lord. And I, I just honor and thank the Lord for the fact that I'm married and I have kids and the, and the families in my community are a gift and they're worthy of protection and care. Absolutely. I am not uh, making the argument that they're not. What I want to say though, is so is singleness and we can really do both at the same time. And I think what we're missing is just an understanding and an embrace of who we each are and what God has called us to. You know, mm-hmm. if, if the Lord has called you to marriage, then pursue that and be by God's help and with the strength of the spirit in you, be an excellent wife or husband, pour into your children. If the Lord has called you to singleness, then do that with excellence as well, with the help of the spirit and the help of the body, the word of God, the people of God, the spirit of God. I think what we're, we're just prone to saying, well, you know, I'm called to this, or this is easier. This is more attractive. Therefore, that's what everybody's called to. One or the other. We, mm-hmm. we just swing this pendulum wildly back and forth. And we equate things like holiness with marriage or motherhood, unfortunately, and accidentally and unconsciously. But what if we zoomed out a little bit and instead said that we are all called to holy sexuality, as um, Christopher Yuan puts it? We're not necessarily called to, you know, heterosexuality specifically or whatever, we're called to holy sexuality. The Lord calls us to be holy. And so that can be in the context of marriage and that can be in the context of singleness. So how do we as the whole family of God pursue one another and provoke each other towards holiness in the calling that he has for us and not say that one is better than the other? beauty in a way that I went, wait, what? And and this is the question where you mentioned, or maybe you'll remember this in the book. I'm trying to remember where it was at, where you mentioned that we really reward beauty more than anything else. And one girl said, it's better to be beautiful than smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, describe what happened there because yeah. that, it bothered me. I mean, it, it just bothered me that a kid would think that I'm not surprised. It, it, it was very a sad moment in reading yeah. the book because that's where our girls are today. They'd rather be beautiful than smart. And I think mm-hmm. that is just 
horrific, actually, yeah. personally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this has been a long time in coming. It's not something that happened overnight and it's not something that happened necessarily with the advent of social media, but certainly the age we're in has made it worse. Um, mm-hmm. It has made it that much harder. So I have four daughters. This is something, and I'm a woman, obviously. So this is something that I think about a lot. But what I point to in the book and bring in a lot of sociological data to sort of prove it out is that girls in our current context are taught from a young age that your value is wrapped up in your appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, usually your sexuality or the, the way that you can express yourself sexually and not just beauty, but I also carry that out into ability. You know, we have, I think Nancy Piercy put it this way first, we have instrumentalized our bodies. We've turned our bodies into instruments. And so this is really a different expression of Gnosticism where we separate Mm -hmm. bodies from minds and souls. And we've just said, okay, this physical body is what is useful. How can I turn this body into a tool for my advancement or the advancement of others? Or how can I exploit somebody else's body? And so we're growing up in an age that says you are only as valuable as you are pretty or sexual Mm -hmm. or able. And this marginalizes so many. I mean, we we reward what our culture deems as beautiful and we punish those who are not. Um, We reward productivity and capability and ability and we punish those who are not able. And we see this borne out in abortion as well as end of life, um, death with dignity as it's so-called and euthanasia and otherwise. Um, We just don't value bodies that aren't beautiful or productive. This is a horrific affront to a holy God who has created everybody in his image and said that everybody is very good. And I think the idea of redeeming and clarifying what beauty is, I think there is that, and again, I'm not a woman, obviously, but seeing it, because I have two daughters and I grew up with three sisters. So the idea of beauty is intrinsic to uh, who a woman is, just a woman wants to be beautiful, but understanding what that beauty is. And I think this is the charm is deceitful, deceitful beauty, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord and, and recovering that idea about the character, which is something, again, we've lost in our, yeah. in our contemporary society. And even in the church, as you see it being infiltrated with this idea of celebrity and big numbers and productivity and notoriety and social media presence, while those who are the quiet men and women of God who are faithful in their families, faithfully living, that's what I want. And, yeah. and that, that's what I hope this younger generation wants. You know, you mentioned that your book, has gone one of two ways where you have people taking things out of context and that you've said some things that have probably frustrated some people in the church and they've responded. But yet at the same time, the secular world has, has responded. What have been the negative responses that you received to the book as well as the positive responses? But let's hit the negative first. Sure. Well, I guess, I don't know, maybe lucky for me, maybe not. A lot of secular readers aren't taking it up and reading it, uh, you know, for good reason. They're yeah, probably yeah. not going to want to spend their time reading 200 pages about a Christian worldview. But I do have very near and dear to me friends and family who have had abortions, who have had multiple sexual partners, who maybe have pursued outward beauty in some extreme ways, 
and who are LGBTQ and who are on that, who would identify on that spectrum. So writing every chapter felt really daunting and, and scary to me because I did not want to alienate those loved ones. I, I want them to hear my heart for them. But I also don't want to compromise the truth because as I say in that repeated phrase, human well-being requires harmony with reality. And when I believe deep down that my loved ones who have pursued things that are outside the will of God, they will not do well. They will not be happy. They will not find contentment. In fact, they will find at the end of the day that the enemy has lied to them and stolen their joy and stolen their lives. So I feel the weight of wanting to communicate what's true, but in such a way that they feel cared for and loved for by their father, who's preparing a feast even now and inviting them in. I want them to be drawn to him. So I think you know, from a like more secular perspective, the pushback has been mostly to the abortion chapter and the LGBTQIA plus chapter, because there is this community that seeks to straddle the world and the church. And I think many, even, you know, Christian friends, I don't know their souls, the state of their souls, you know, as the Lord would, but they do seek to straddle both. Mm-hmm. And there is a growing, I think it's growing. I actually don't know the data for sure, but it seems like there's a growing population that wants to be able to affirm and fight for and even call a human right abortion and LGBTQIA plus identities and say that that is holy and that is of mm-hmm. God and that we can have the church and these things at the same time. So the pushback has been from that community that wants to straddle both. Mm. And I'm saying you can't. Straddle. Yeah, I agree. So that's just not received as as well. They want to say, no, you you misinterpret the word of God. You misinterpret what the Bible says. And I I say, well, you're disagreeing with 2000 years of church history. And and I think you're off here. And I think that we see it in the fruit of lives that have been so damaged by buying into these ideologies and thinking they are of God when they are not. Mm -hmm. I would give a wholehearted amen to that. That's And you mentioned the people that you have in your life. I mean, I have those as well. And I think we all do, if we're very honest with this and we're very forthcoming. But I think our concern is with being loved. Like, what is love? Love is an allowance of something that we know is harmful. It's telling the person, there's a car coming at you right now, and you're hurting yourself by standing there. We want you to find this freedom. But in our current cultural moment, I think this is where the ideology is taking it. But as this is where, again, even the title of your book, it's a counterfeit. It's it's not real. It looks like the real thing. It exhibits. It sounds like it. You have all the social media presence behind it. But this is where I think we have a very short-term memory. We look at, at what happens in the immediacy of months and years. I mean, just short years, you know, within a decade. We can't look at it within a hundred years of its effects. And I think when you see, you're, you're already seeing the, the the changing of it, even with the, the the gay marriage idea. I remember when gay marriage became legalized, I was actually in Massachusetts on the the steps of the uh, of Boston Commons when the vote came through. And yeah. I remember a theologian saying, once this becomes okay, everything's going to be okay. There's no line any longer. And people are like, no, no, no. And I think most Christians were like, well, let those who are are gay and let them be okay. It's not going to affect me. Well, then it drifts into the transgender aspect. And now people are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, I don't want my daughter to be exposed by this. And again, you have the community going, people going back and forth and fighting over it. But 
clearly, scripturally, this is how God laid this out. This is the place of fullness of joy. And I, I know that I even have listeners that are going to vehemently disagree. Yeah. But, but our goal is not to entertain. It's to inform so that there's transformation, so yeah. that people will come into the life changing encounter of Jesus. And we would, at the same time, I can anticipate some those saying, well, look at the scandals in the church. When we, we will say, let's expose those because those mm-hmm. are horrific abuses of what mm-hmm. God has done. And, and yes, the church in some places has covered it up to its shame. As Trevin Wax said on the show, and he's written, I know in the thrill of orthodoxy, it's the rot that we have to get rid of, but it doesn't negate the truth. And of those who have faithfully been changed. And this is where I thought your book did such a good job with balancing truth with compassion and love and helping people identify and give language to these empty promises. And I just wanted to thank you for writing the book, helping hopefully help many women grow in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, How can people follow you, Jen, and learn more about what you're doing? Sure. Yeah, I am on social media everywhere as Jen Oshman, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I do have a website called jenoshman.com and you can find my books anywhere books are sold. And this isn't just your, this, I mean, you got another one after this. Yes. Three to date. Um, the third book just came out this month, actually, and it's called Welcome. Welcome. And what is that book about? Um, it's part of a series called Love Your Church, and the subtitle is making, uh, Loving Your Church by Making Space for Everyone. And so it um, just encourages and exhorts the reader to create an atmosphere of hospitality and family and really prioritizing the spiritual family and making space for all kinds of people in our bodies. The way that Christ pursued us, may we pursue others. Awesome. I actually am looking forward to getting that book. Had I known Great. that, we would have talked about both of them. But <laughs> I, did, I missed that for some reason. So, Jen, thank no you. Thank you for coming on the show. God bless you. As you heard in the conversation, I grabbed quite a few snippets and quotes from Jen's book, Cultural Counterfeits. It's so good and an award winner, by the way. I found that she had a way of showing common assumptions that we often make without realizing it and then turning them upside down. I specifically appreciated her challenge to us to balance truth with compassion. We need that. To ask ourselves the hard questions about whether we have bought into the counterfeits that the culture offers. Part of the Christian life, in fact, a very large part of the Christian life is holding these things in tension. Here's what I mean. The need to protect and elevate the family is on one hand, but we must make sure not to deify it and so it becomes an idol and hold it so high that we don't actually value the gift of singleness. We have the need to understand that we are embodied people and that those bodies that God has given us are good. And we have to see that we in the church are just as susceptible to being the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son as the younger brother, probably even more so. You know, when I was younger, I really identified with the younger brother, but as I've aged, I identify more with the older brother. And perhaps you do too. If you want to read more about this subject, it's a fantastic book. It's Tim Keller's Prodigal God. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments for us, please check us out on Facebook or Instagram. And if you want to watch this conversation or many others, subscribe to our YouTube channel. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. I'm